Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Listeners, you might assume that Ben and my text conversations are about wonky, nerdy stuff, like uh, what Chris Van Hollen is saying about uh, Aid to Israel. And you'd be right. (laughs) But it's also about uh, the hilarious content that Twitter users are making about a brawl in Alabama on sort of a river walk. That is that that consumed most of my morning, thanks to you. Uh, I have to admit that I had one of those days yesterday when I could just tell early on I was going to be very productive, mm-hmm. and I, I actually think I, <laughs> I ended up spending about two hours consuming that content. Oh, I, yeah, I, did. I told you guys forty five minutes, but that was that was I actually you under, wrote and deleted because uh, I was embarrassed. It was but, like when you tell the the doctor you had three drinks this week, yeah, on average, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know, maybe I have a glass of wine, yeah, and I, you know, once every while. Um, yeah, it, I. We should probably not comment too much on it, but uh, yeah. if you have not uh, gone down the rabbit hole of the Montgomery, and there are many different names for it now, uh, Brawl, I guess, is usually the best search. Uh, let's just say like it's uh, it can be a satisfying It's tour. impressive. Yeah. The, the gist is these sort of like horrible rednecky Terrible. guys jump a security guard in front of a riverboat full of passengers, and one guy is so pissed about it, he literally dives off the riverboat and swims to the shore to help him. And let me just tell you, the bad guys uh, get it in the end. Yeah, that guy's a total legend. And and I just, the only thing I will say uh, confidently is that the white guys, uh, like, could not appear to be more, like, redneckish. And in the wrong, you know, yeah. Like, they have their shirts off. They literally have rednecks, you know? <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, they, they get what's coming. Yeah, from. but people are calling the hero uh, Scuba Gooding Jr., yeah. among other, <laughs> yeah, like, incredible yeah. nicknames. But enough about that. Uh, we got a great, great show today, Ben. So we're going to talk about the latest developments with the coup in Niger, uh, sea drones in Ukraine, and peace talks that were hosted by Saudi Arabia. Some rare foreign policy polling from CNN got us both quite excited. Uh, we will once again also try to take you inside the mind of the foreign policy debates happening in the Republican presidential primary. There's reports that Marines are going to start defending ships in the Persian Gulf. We'll talk about whether that's a good idea. There's some good news and bad news for the president of Colombia. ISIS gets a new boss. Congrats to everyone in ISIS. Uh, uh, There's a story about China, leftist groups, and a terrible wedding invite. The worst startup pitch I've ever heard. And then Crooked Media's Max Fisher is going to join us to talk about like a snapshot of where democracy is around the globe. Before we get to the news, Ben, so uh, the Crooked Media subscription community is hopping. Uh, we got to get you on the Discord because there's a Pod Save the World. Discord, yeah. I haven't been on until recently there, but now I'm like deep in it and there's a whole Pod Save the World. Are there leaked documents? No, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Wink. Uh, there's a, a Pod Save the World channel. And it's this very fun, very fun, like funny, oh, I'll get on rolling, that. nerdy conversation. Oh, I about promise. I promise to get All on right. the Pod Save the World Discord to the world. Crooked.com slash friends if you want to join today. Also, if you want to see Love It or Leave It live in LA, hmm. the Thursday night shows at Dynasty Typewriter are back. Go to crooked.com slash events for more details and to score tickets. Um, let's start Niger. Sound good? Let's do it. So on July 26, uh, the former head of the military guard Niger seized power from the current president, Mohamed Bazoum, and they put him under house arrest where Mohamed Bazoum remains with his family. In response, ECOWAS, a union of 15 West African countries, threatened consequences that could include military action if Bazoum wasn't reinstated by last Sunday. Uh, that deadline has obviously lapsed. The U.S., the EU, the French, the World Bank, they've suspended aid or they stopped military cooperation with Niger. ECOWAS sanctioned some of the coup leaders. Nigeria even cut power to Niger, which is a huge deal because Niger gets 70% of its power from Nigeria. That's a, it's a hell of a sanction right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, this, you know, this threat from ECOWAS was 
concerning enough for the folks in Niger that they closed their airspace over the country on Sunday. It might still be closed. Actually, I think flights are diverting around Niger. But obviously, the deadline's passed. There have been a lot of talks and meetings, but no further action. Then I saw that uh, the acting deputy secretary of state, Tori Newland, went to Niger. She met face-to-face with some of the the coup members. Uh, no resolution from that. The deputy national security advisor, John Finer, went to Nigeria with some NSC folks for talks. So ECOWAS meets again on Thursday. Uh, the leaders of neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso, who also took power in military coups, sent delegations to Niger. They keep reiterating their support for the coup and their opposition to any intervention. According to Al Jazeera, an estimated 30,000 people gathered in Niger's capital for a pro-coup rally. There's lots of photos from that rally. Some people have yeah. little Russian flags. It seems like everybody is worried about or expecting the the Wagner group to swing into Niger if they haven't already. So Ben, you know, you're starting to see there's a lot of diplomacy happening, a lot of good things, probably, um, I assume. There's also some splits within ECOWAS happening. I saw Algeria and Chad said they do not support military intervention. There was a debate in the Nigerian Senate where I think the Senate came out against intervention. There's a lot of tribal and cultural overlap between Niger and Nigeria, which share a border and, and you know peoples um, that would make a Nigerian military intervention in Niger uh, fraught yeah. politically uh, for a variety of reasons. You're starting to see people ask the question, was it a mistake for ECOWAS to threaten military action so quickly when there maybe wasn't political support for following through um, or at least meeting their one week deadline? Do you agree with that? Is it too soon to tell? And anything else you sort of noticed over the, I know you've been deep in Niger coup <laughs> yeah. Twitter because yeah. you've been sending me lots of links. Yeah, this is a really interesting story uh, the more you dig into it, and uh, there, there are different dimensions to it. I mean, first, as we've talked about, this is yet another coup in West Africa, and if you stack up Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso, that's a huge swath of territory that will all be run by coup leaders, all of whom have clearly oriented around Russia and the Wagner Group. Uh, and so it represents an enormous potential gain in Russian influence in that part of the world, and just a catastrophic kind of collapse of French influence because the one thing that the coup leaders seem to be tapping into that clearly the public feels pretty intuitively is mm-hmm. kind of anti-French uh, sentiment. 1,500 French troops in Niger. Yeah, and way. the French have been trying, you know, if you read about this, the French have been trying to use Niger as like a model for a somewhat more equitable relationship, you mm-hmm. know, so they were like, you know, not flying French flags and they were not in command of Nigerian forces, but kind of in the supporting role. And But you know what? It seems like that shift was kind of too late to impact public opinion. ECOWAS threatening military intervention, I mean, the problem there is that uh, they they clearly issued that threat because they wanted to kind of send a message that, you know, this kind of domino uh, of coups can continue. But the problem is that they made the threat before they did any kind of planning around what that would actually mean. And even in Nigeria, you can't intervene militarily without support from their parliament, and that doesn't seem to be forthcoming. So yeah, I, I do think it was a mistake uh, to do that if they didn't kind of know what that meant, you know, because uh, we still, is that like an invasion of Niger? Is that, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of more limited military action? Was this Tanubu's red line? Yeah, exactly. That's the nerdiest joke I've yeah, ever made. I'm it, sorry. I'll take it back. Yeah, it, it, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> that's a good nerdy joke. Uh, but uh, yeah, the president of Nigeria, you know, so the the first question is, what does this mean for ECOWAS going forward? Do they really mean what they say by military intervention? If so, that seems like that may actually be like a, another pretty large war on the African continent when we've already seen in Ethiopia and Sudan and 
uh, obviously ongoing conflicts in the Horn of Africa. Um, so uh, it seems like the people opposing the coup, that is the United States government uh, that just sent Tory Newland, that is ECOWAS, that is the French government, don't really have like a means of dislodging this coup government. They were hoping, I think, that the military in Niger would do it for them because the military has received all this aid and assistance and training from the French in the United States. Uh, and they weren't necessarily part of the first wave of this coup because it was the presidential guard, which is this kind of smaller force in the capital. That doesn't seem to be happening um, if, no. unless there's something we're not seeing within, you know, something to watch is whether any factions in the Nigerian military try to take this on. And if that doesn't happen and the Wagner guys get in there and they kind of consolidate power, your window for reversing this can close very fast. And then the question remains, well, what happens to those French and American troops that are there? The U.S. has drone bases there. And then that could lead to a situation where not only are you concerned about you know getting those people out and does Wagner kind of take over our drone bases. I'm sure we have ways to kind of destroy that on the way at the door. But also, frankly, there's, you know, there is a threat from extremists that, you know, continue to be in that region. And so you could be left with a scenario where you've got three entrenched pro-Russian coup governments. You got the Wagner group all over the place. And you have probably a growing extremist challenge because we've seen in places like Mali, that's what's happened. Wagner is not as capable as the French and the US. Or they don't even try. Or they don't try, yeah. right? And, and then that could become a bigger threat across West Africa. So this... This is not good because, like the, <laughs> like unless this resolves somehow politically and diplomatically, or the Nigerian military is able to do this, you got a situation where you could have a rising terrorist threat, or you could have a, a, some kind of interstate conflict in West Africa, along with a Russian foothold. It's just not great. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that I think you know over the last six months, security incidents uh, like terrorist attacks, anything, are, are down forty percent in Niger, in neighboring Mali, where the Wagner Group took over a couple of years ago. Like you pointed out, they're up, so things are getting much less safe in places where Wagner is stationed. I think that the key question is what you said is whether there can be some sort of diplomatic resolution to this coup in concert with Niger's constitution. I think like the, the powers that be, the anti-coup forces out there probably think it's helpful to have ECOWAS supplying real pressure. I do, you know, setting a weak deadline without your ducks in a row is probably a problem. But you know, uh, but once the U.S. makes a determination that there was a coup, there's a bunch of U.S. assistance that they have to withhold and they can't turn back on until there's a democratically elected government again, right? Like the French can, the Europeans can turn assistance on and off. We have a lot more restrictions in place that would make it really challenging. Yeah, those restrictions, you know, are, are, are legal and and this is not a close call. I mean, this is no. a coup. Like a, a few hundred guys went in the presidential palace, put the president under house arrest and went on television and announced that they were the government. By the way, the president is still under house arrest because he- But writing op-eds in the Washington Post. Well, he had, what's crazy is he had like some safe room built in the presidential residence like for this contingency. Um, so he's still hanging out there. I guess th the question also is like, what are the lessons from the US here? And, and I don't, you know, th these are tough problems. So I, I don't want to, blame the U.S. for this. I mean, this is something that happened internal to Niger, just as it's happened to other places. I do think that just as the French have learned the lesson over the last decade that people were tired of French influence being uh, outsized in this part of the world, the U.S. assistance to these countries is often very securitized around our security interests. Now, they share that interest in fighting extremists, but you know, we've plowed a bunch of money into Niger 
the units that we trained were off fighting extremists. They were not in the capital. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 to me, you know, I've heard for a long time, dating back to the Obama years, complaints from Africans that the the that AFRICOM, the U.S. command down in Africa, that does a lot of training and assisting down there, you, you know our relationships have become very securitized with these countries and securitized in ways that are very focused on like terrorism and our our, our threat picture. Um, and yeah, sure, even though that's a threat picture that's shared, it's not like institution building. And the people notice that there's hundreds of millions of dollars coming into their country and yet the standards of living in Niger are among the lowest in the world, you know? And and, and so I think that the the point for the U.S. is we need a more holistic approach here, just kind of training counterterrorism forces and having hugely weighted funding towards that, um, you know, that doesn't give us the leverage that we think we might have in in these types of places. Because even we train some of the coup people, you know, um, you know, we we need to kind of look more comprehensively at our relationships with countries like Niger, so that they're not just places where we're building like a CT force. I'm sure, yes, we have other development programs there, but clearly that didn't add up to like a more stable government, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, there is some hope. There is some precedent of coups getting resolved. Uh, there was a coup in Mali in 2012 that I think was resolved, although it was a short-term fix, which led to future challenges. In 2017, ECOWAS troops went into the Gambia where they helped resolve a constitutional crisis after the Gambian president refused to leave. Uh, we could have used some ECOWAS troops ourselves, Ben, after January 6th. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, there was a Wall Street Journal story last week that you and I both read. And the headline triggered the shit out of me, which was how the U.S. fumbled Niger's coup and gave Russia an opening. And it triggered me because it's like there's so much foreign policy reporting that is viewed through the prism of Washington. Yeah, like win-loss column. Yeah, yeah like yeah. we can or should yeah. influence all these events. But it did note uh, a couple things that were notable. So the U.S. has no ambassador to Niger because Rand Paul was holding that person up. Actually, it turns out uh, the ambassador to Niger, Kathleen Fitzgibbon, did finally get through the Friday after the coup. So thank you, Rand, for that. But the Senate is also holding up the ambassador of the AU, the African Union, our ambassador to uh, Nigeria. Uh, the Senate is just like gumming up the works. So, you know, do I think having those personnel in place would have prevented the coup? No. But those are your eyes and ears on the ground. Those are the people that can, you know, intervene in those crucial first 24, 48 hours and, you know, do some diplomacy for you. And, you know, you have you don't have Senate confirmed folks in there. Yeah. No. And it's a, it's both eyes and ears and getting your best and most senior people on the ground. It's also a message to these places about how much they matter to us. Mm-hmm. I mean, the African Union is the principal body, the coordinating all the African states. And uh, it's like, you know, it, it's like not having an ambassador to the United Nations. Like it, it just sends a message to the African Union that we don't really give a shit, that these appointments can be held up for political gamesmanship. And and look, across the board, I think the U.S. needs to continue. There's some wonderful people in the government working on Africa, but we need to continue to be investing in and creating promotion tracks for people who are Africa experts. I've seen this in the U.S. government that if you're from, you know, if you're focused on a region like Africa or Latin America, you know, sometimes that's not what gets you ahead. And you know, we, we need to do better across the board. Uh, Senate confirmation is the easiest place where yeah. you would think that that shouldn't be a problem. But uh, yeah, it's not great when you don't have your people in place and there's a potential war. And, and Rand Paul is holding up your nominees because he wants information with the lab leak theory. It's like, Literally. Well, that's that the, yeah, yeah, Literally. Yeah. Infuriating. Okay. Well, let's talk about Ukraine. Um, so Ben, Ukraine continues to very effectively employ sea drones. Uh, over the weekend, they hit a Russian oil tanker off the coast of Crimea. Before that, they hit a Russian landing ship uh, in the Black Sea. 
the, both of these targets, you know, suggest some very impressive range on these things. And clearly, like they're making more of them, their capabilities ramping up. The New York Times reported that these sea drones can travel 48 miles an hour and have a range of up to 450 nautical miles, which is that's pretty far. Um, so, you know, 3% of global oil and gas products move through the Black Sea, including 10 to 20% of Russian oil exports. So Ukraine could have a big impact on global energy prices. They keep hitting these oil tankers as well as uh, warships. Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie went to Ukraine. Uh, he solved everything. That's great. Although, I, look, I do appreciate <laughs> him doing this. It'll probably lose him votes, if we're being honest. We'll get some polling later. Well, go, you know, Chris Christie going to Ukraine is kind of the foreign policy version of Chris Christie coming on Pod Save America for his presidential campaign. <laughs> Speaking to the wrong audience. Might get some donors, you know, yeah, might get some attention, yeah. but uh, I'm not sure it's going to win in the Republican yeah, primary. Not winning a lot of yeah. votes. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that Ukraine is burning through 90,000 artillery shells a month uh, and struggling to ramp up production to sustain that pace. It just gives you an idea of how brutal this conflict is. In Russia proper, uh, anti-corruption activist and opposition leader Alexei Navalny was sentenced to another 19 years in prison for charges of extremism, bullshit charges of extremism. It's the latest in a series of, of show trials and unjust sentences for Navalny. I think this trial was held in the penal colony where he's already at. So it's like, it's a joke. And then finally, Ben, Representatives from 40 countries met in Saudi Arabia for talks about a potential peaceful settlement to the war in Ukraine. That included uh, reps from China, India, the US, Europe, but not the Russians, things like the national security advisor level. The Ukrainians said the talks were productive. Uh, Russia denounced them. The attendees aren't talking much about what was discussed, but it does seem like, I don't know, I, I was cynical about these things, if nothing else getting those people in the room might have a net benefit long-term. Maybe you can badger, you know, like the Saudis clearly did this for PR, right? Like they know if they host a yes. Ukraine peace talks, like that's the best thing for them in terms of influencing Western audiences. I do wonder if there is just some value of like getting the, the national security official from Ukraine talking directly to the Chinese and the Indians. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I do think it was, you know, cynical PR for the Saudis and that it was also probably part of them trying to create positive mood music around these normalization talks that we talked about last week. Um, but look, I, I think that you want to create structures where people can come together and meet. Part of that is, yes, the Saudis have a convening power and some of these other countries do that can get the Ukrainians in the room with people that they're not going to meet with at the G7 or NATO summit, right? Or so, the European countries couldn't get to come. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, you know, just enlarges the people they're talking to. But more importantly, I think, is that you never know when momentum might build for some kind of agreement. Some escalation risk could take place. Something scary could happen. Um, the grain crisis could accelerate. And, you, you know, the best thing I saw out of this is that there may be further meetings in other places. So this becomes kind of like a something that, that continues in terms of a format. Um, and that's really the best you can hope for is like, you know, create formats for diplomacy yeah, that serves some Ukrainian purpose and talk to some more countries. But also if something happens that really seems to accelerate the global interest in resolving this, which... You'd think it would already be there, but um, you know you want to have some structure and some muscle memory around that, so that the same people are not meeting for the first time. You definitely, know? definitely. And in, like in terms of the war itself, I mean, yeah, this drone capability is interesting and seems to be ramping up. And these attacks deep into Russia are, are the norm now. Um, I did hear an interesting analysis from Mike Hoffman, who's the you know Russia analyst who's all over the yeah, news since like the war the, started. Yeah, the military nerd. Yeah, yeah, he, he was on the War on the Rocks podcast. Great show. He was talking about how and has been arguing for a while how the Ukrainian decision to throw so many 
resources and troops at Bakhmut was a mistake because yep. it tied them up there. It allowed the Russians to entrench and lay down more mines in other places and reinforce those positions. And then meanwhile, like for a while, it seemed like, okay, maybe Ukraine is winning this war of attrition. But even if it was three to one Russian deaths compared to Ukrainians, the Russian deaths were all Wagner forces that they just got out of a uh, yes. prison while the Ukrainian forces who died were like some of their battle-tested men who they can't replace. Yeah. So t- two things on the on the war. That that point, I, I've, I mean, I, I've heard this from a lot, from a bunch of people. I think it was the U.S. government's position at the yeah, time, I, too. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm comfortable saying I, I've heard that from people that, let's just say, sir, uh, you know, serve in the U.S. government, it, that, that not only was it a huge expenditure of, of resources, but exactly the point that you made or that you, you, you know, coffee, coffee made, made yeah. which is that the Russians have a bigger population and they have a bigger pool of people to draw from. And so, sure, the Ukrainians were saying, hey, look at what's happening in Bakhmut. We're killing all these Russians. But they were using their best troops to kill the Russians' worst troops. The Russians were literally throwing convicts at this. And there was a bit of like a kind of body count thing happening, like you know, the Vietnam yep. thing where we're like measuring success by. And remember, there were like the, you know, the Ukrainians that were lifting up the Russian casualty numbers. Well, you know, it, the Russians have more people. And, and, and I think, you know, there's been this deference to not question any Ukrainian military decisions. But well, that, we, look, political leaders make military decisions and they're yeah. not always in the best military interest. Look yeah. at the war in Iraq. Yeah. Well, <laughs> look exactly. at 20 years in Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, you know the Ukrainians. I, so what does that mean for now? I think in general, it, it, it kind of means that the Ukrainians need to be a little more careful about their most highly trained troops, their most advanced equipment. They have to be pretty strategic about where they choose to deploy that, you know. And I think it kind of explains why the the counteroffensive might be going a little slower than people thought because it yeah. does seem like they're putting the Ukrainians are putting a premium on avoiding casualties and they're not just rushing these, you know, newly equipped best arms into the fight. They're like kind of probing still for weak spots and having a really hard time getting through like gigantic minefields. Yeah, everywhere. no, and that may, that's the right decision. But the problem is that Bakhmut probably necessitated that even more. On the on the drone thing, the one thing I'd say, we've talked a lot about how they're moving to these kinds of strikes because in part because of the counteroffensive. Um, the Black Sea is becoming this flashpoint in an interesting way because you're seeing more Ukrainian drone attacks in the Black Sea against Russian vessels. The absence of the grain initiative has kind of removed Russian constraints on striking. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked to Samantha Power about strikes in Odessa. They were striking like along NATO's borders on the Danube River. So if you look at the Black Sea, you've got, you mentioned the oil going through there. You've got now drone attacks from the Ukrainians. You've got NATO countries, Romania and Bulgaria that border the Black Sea. Russia kind of close for comfort there. This is like, you know, a real flashpoint for potential NATO-Russia confrontation if Russia strays into NATO territory or if like somehow there's like a naval confrontation, you've got U.S. military and NATO aircraft in the international skies of the Black Sea. So, you know, in addition to kind of Ukraine just getting more aggressive, this is something to watch. The only thing I'd say about Navalny is like Navalny himself has said like he has a life sentence basically. So long as Putin is alive, Navalny's being in prison. I think they do these trials to just kind of create media circuses where they can once again attack yeah, I wonder why try. they did it. I think it's just like it it's like him? it's like programming for their like cinematic universe, right? Mm-hmm. Like they they can they're trying to drive down his support and 
every time they have one of these trials, I'm sure that there's like, you know, hundreds of hours of programming on Russian television demonizing Navalny. And I, I can't think of any other reason other than to kind of depress, demoralize the opposition and try to turn Russian public opinion further against him. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. So speaking of public opinion, let's talk about American public opinion, because it does seem likely that the war in Ukraine is going to go on for a long time. We will probably need to do another supplemental appropriations bill to send more yeah. arms and stuff. No, no over. question. So that gets you into public opinion. Uh, CNN released a foreign policy poll. Very exciting moment for us, uh, worldo nerds here. Uh, let's dig into some of the numbers. So Ben, first the top line stuff. So the poll asked respondents whether they approved or disapproved of Biden's handling of the following issues. The U.S. relationship with China, 42% approve, 57% disapprove. The U.S. relationship with Russia, 43% approve, 56% disapprove. The situation in Ukraine, 45% approve, 54% disapprove. So basically, that seemed to kind of track 
Biden's overall approval rating, if not like float a little above where like the 538 average is. But the poll also asked whether the U.S. should do more to stop Russian military actions in Ukraine or whether the U.S. has already done enough. 48% said we should do more. 51% said we've done enough. That's a pretty big change from February of 2022. 62% said we should do more. They also asked if Congress should or should not authorize more funding for Ukraine. 45% said yes, more funding. 55% said no. When you get into sort of like specifics of what the U.S. should provide, intelligence gathering is the most supported at 63%. 53% support military training. 43% support sending uh, weapons. 17% support sending U.S. troops into combat, which is actually a little higher than I would have <laughs> yeah. expected there. So, you know, Ben, it, it speaks to... This poll might be an outlier. Like, you know, there's other polling we can talk about that has shown if you if you phrase it differently, like yeah. do you think it's in our interests that's uh, that that shows better numbers in terms of uh, support for ongoing US support for Ukraine. But I also noticed that seventy seven percent of voters in this poll are worried that the war in Ukraine will continue without resolution for a long time. Pretty smart. Pretty understandable. Opinion, yeah. Fifty six percent are worried it, it threatens US national security. So like, you know, there's some risk in here. There is risk. I mean, there's the the question of like, can you continue to provide assistance? And it it, it strikes me that like whatever they get, kind of towards the end of this year, um, assuming they can get some more funding, um, is probably might be their last turn before the election. You know, because it's hard to imagine, you know, in the summer of an election year with Donald Trump if he's a nominee, like the House Republicans passing more of this stuff, and, and so that. You know, that could put Ukraine on like a tighter, you know, bandwidth of uh, of what they can count on from the U.S. Then there's just a question of like, where is this in the summer of an election year? Like, it, is public opinion going to continue to sour? And what, what the Biden people kind of tout, uh, understandably, as one of his most important, you know, policies could, you know, could shift from being like a positive to, you know, at least something that's very contested. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have to do some work there. I think that like one thing to think about is who are you, who's the audience? And it, you know, this ties back actually to the Chris Christie thing because the Ukrainians are involved in this too because they, they're sometimes their own best messengers. Yeah. I would say that way too much time it, it, it has been spent by the Ukrainians and, 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 I, and, and the Biden administration. But I, I say this, you know, with sympathy, um, but they've messaged a lot to like, the foreign policy Davos. audience, the never Trumpers, yeah. the Aspen, Aspen Security, Security Forum, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like you've got those people, right? Get like Zelensky on Fox News. Yeah, like Chris Christie is emblematic of the wing of the Republican Party that could not be more invested in the war in Ukraine. Like there's not, I don't think there's a single person. Yeah. And, and, and like, I'm not trashing Christie on this because I'm glad he shares. No, I'm glad he went to. Yeah. But like not, not one person is going to now support the war in Ukraine because Chris Christie went there. I think that they need, yes, they have a problem in MAGA world. And if they can find any, any the Ukrainians or the kind of pro-support Ukraine people can find any kind of MAGA, like there've got to be some people in Congress that are kind of MAGA adjacent that are still sympathetic to the Ukrainians. But here's my other piece of advice, the left. You know, the, the, the left has stuck with Ukraine despite, I think, some discomfort over, you know, the, the lack of an end strategy and the, the pouring weapons in. I would be like trying to get some more left wing. That's interesting. You know, like, because yeah. if I look at where I'm worried about support, it, you know, the, the Republican support is going to diminish over time because of Trump 
and Fox and all the rest of it. But the left is also could get tired of this because they definitely you know, and and I don't see a lot of effort to message to those people. So if I'm the Ukrainians or the Biden administration, I'm thinking like, let's spend a little less time on Ann Applebaum and and um, you know the Morning Joe panel and the Aspen Security Forum and the Never Trumpers and more on like the where this support is softening, you know? So I looked at this poll. It was probably like 400 some odd people, right? Usually that's what they are. I, I don't remember what it was. If you look at the cross tabs by like race or age, the margin of error on these things goes from like three or 5% to maybe 10% because the sample size gets so small. But I did notice in here that um, support from black voters was propping up Biden's overall approval on like handling yeah. of issues. But when you ask black voters about should the U.S. authorize more uh, assistance to Ukraine, they were like the majorities were opposed to it. So it does seem like you were to your point, like Biden is losing his base on the next set of questions and hard choices around assistance. Yeah. And, and if you think about who you tend to see, you know, getting the carpet ruled out in Kiev, I mean, it's pretty white, you know, I mean, like, yeah. like, and it's not a knock on anybody. Uh, I just, you know, putting a little more effort into building bridges to other constituencies than the ones that are already fully invested in this uh, is where I'd go if I was Ukrainians and the Biden people. Chris Christie did bring uh, an autographed copy of uh, Bon Jovi's lyrics to It's My Life. I, I'm not sure that's going to help you deal okay. with your uh, okay. Never mind. with your black and Hispanic. Okay. Well, I take it back. I take it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so Ben, speaking of approval, we, we have tried, uh, we, we did that bunch of clips from that forum in Iowa uh, that Tucker Carlson hosted where, you know, he talked about foreign policy with a bunch of the 2024 Republican candidates. We're going to try to take you back inside the mind of these Republican candidates and the Republican primary voters. So two data points that seemed instructive this week. So first, Ben, Ron DeSantis, uh, he's running for president. It's not going very well, so you might not have heard of him. Um, he has been saying he supports using deadly force against migrants coming into the U.S. who are suspected of smuggling drugs, like the straight up like Rodrigo Duterte yeah. policy of kill him first, ask question later. Here's, here's a clip from a DeSantis interview uh, with NBC News. You outlined some pretty severe consequences for those who come into our country illegally. Uh, you've said uh, that folks can use deadly force, that law enforcement can use deadly force, saying if cartels are trying to run product into this country, they're going to end up stone cold dead. How far might you take that method for preventing illegal crossings in general? Like under a DeSantis administration, would anyone crossing the border illegally potentially face deadly force from law it would enforcement? Be, it, no, it's similar to like if you're in the military, you have rules yeah. of engagement. Anyone that's hostile intent or a hostile act, which the cartels are, you know, you would then engage with lethal force. I think these cartels are, are basically foreign terrorist organizations. They are responsible for killing more Americans on an annual basis than any other group or country uh, throughout the entire world. And yet this is just happening and it's happening in communities all across the United States. You can find uh, these angel mothers who've lost children uh, to fentanyl overdose in virtually any community in the United States. And I, it really hit me when I was down in Arizona. You know, most of the border doesn't have a wall, of course, but there was parts where there was a wall. And these guys are working on the wall. I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, we're repairing the hole. The cartels cut through yeah. the steel beams. So if you see that happening and they got the satchel of, of fentanyl uh, strapped to their back, you use deadly force against them. You lay them out. 
you will see a change of behavior. You have to take the fight to the cartels. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see Americans dying. Sorry for making you listen to his horrible uh, voice. Every time the voice starts, it's like, oh. It's tough. It's tough. Uh, Dasha Burns, uh, the reporter who did the interview from NBC, she pushes on him on like, okay, how do you know it's the middle of the night? You see someone crossing the border. How do you know it's a drug dealer versus like a pregnant mom? And he's like, well, in Iraq, we figured it out. But, you know. No, we didn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 say. yeah. But reminder, like there's an NBC poll recently that found 86% of Republican primary voters support deploying the U.S. military to the border to stop uh, drug dealers. Majorities of the entire country, the entire electorate supported too. Here's the problem with this. I mean, we are repeating, we're doing an incredibly typical American, particularly right-wing American thing, right? Which is that there's a very big problem in fentanyl. And you could, uh, you know, you could categorize it as a national security issue. It's also, you know, a public health issue. And that's what I'm going to get to is like their toolkit that's emerging is sanction China and bomb Mexico, essentially. Literally. I mean, that's, that's no, their policy. It, yeah. And it's such an American... Uh, we have this problem in our communities. We have a, a prob- all kinds of underlying factors that are contributing to demand for fentanyl. We can't get our arms around this problem. So we're going to sanction some people in China because the fentanyl, some of it comes from there. And, and we're just going to start bombing stuff along the border. And yeah, after the I, Sackler family got everybody hooked in the first place on legal pills. Well, here. this is the thing. If you think that that's going to work, just take a look at how the war on drugs went the last 30, however many, 40 years. I mean, it, that this militarizing like uh, an, uh, an issue where you, you you can't, I mean, there's no way you can stop this stuff from coming in the country by, you know, even if you bomb some people and like it, fentanyl is going to get in the country. Like yeah. we have to, we have to deal with this issue in our communities. You know, we have to deal with it internationally. You're much more likely to, to make progress diplomatically. You know, if you get getting the Chinese to do more, uh, working multilaterally with other countries to Especially like- Especially with Mexico. Disrupt this. Cooperation with Mex- has Cooperating with Mexicans. Yeah. Like you're going to get more th- through cooperation and just slowing this down. You're never going to stop it. Then you are by saying, we're now going to make ourselves hostile to China where this is emanating from in some cases and hostile to Mexico, which probably won't like us bombing on their side of the border. Or indiscriminately shooting people. You're inevitably going to kill people uh, that you mis- mistaken for fentanyl you know, traffickers. Th- this is a terrible idea. It's crazy. And it is going to be gaining momentum too. I mean, this is, this is something to watch because obviously if Trump wins, I think all this stuff is on the table. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. So that is the concerning sort of development on sort of immigration and or drugs, even though sort of immigration numbers have dropped because of some of the Biden policies, yeah. controversial as they are. But also, Ben, I thought this clip from uh, another candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy, was interesting too. Uh, it was posted on Twitter by a friend of the pod, Tim Miller, who went to an event Vivek hosted in Iowa. Uh, and this is him talking about the government withholding intelligence uh, around the 9-11 attacks. Quiet. You always want to, to want to watch the 20-year deadline when they declassify the documents on a Friday evening. A little dump they'll put out at 7 p.m. on a Friday. In 2021, what do we say? Actually, they changed their tune. They said, actually, this guy was a Saudi intelligence operative. The government never said it. So is this a core campaign issue for me? No, it's not. Right? And so it's some, you know, the other campaigns would love for me to get down this rabbit hole because you get to sound like a crazy man if you're like a 9-11 truther. But the truth is, I do not trust our government. They have systematically lied to us. And, and you know what? Some people... <laughs> Wall Street Journal was upset about this. They said, Vivek Ramaswamy is pushing a left-wing conspiracy theory. I don't care if it's left-wing or right-wing. I could care less for the Republican Party. I'll just be honest with you about that. I don't stand for Republican or Democrat. I stand for the United States of America. 
So I actually don't really know what he thinks if he's like a 9-11 conspiracy theorist, I think you, right there he's just talking about sort of like the slow way that information in the 9-11 commission report was declassified I, 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 or released or withheld, right? Yeah. But like I, the broader, I mean, we'll talk about both, but yeah. the, the broader distrust of government, I think he's right. It, it is not a Republican or Democratic thing. It is a cross-party sort of like, especially post 9-11, post-Iraq, real concern that people have no faith in in anything the government tells them. And he's appealing to that audience and doing really well, despite being a 37-year-old businessman with no <laughs> relevant experience, who yeah. looks like he's 12, uh, but is like getting more traction than Ron DeSantis. Yeah. I, I So on the 9-11 piece, I, some of you may know I worked with the 9-11 commission. I was like the working for the, the Democratic vice chair of the 9-11 commission throughout that, that process. I think he's referring to the Saudi intelligence piece of this, which is so to be fair to him, not that I want to be that fair to him, I don't think he's saying that like the World Trade Center was dynamited. No, no. There, there was this question about whether Saudi intelligence was involved in 9-11. And this centered around two of the hijackers who came through San Diego who had established contacts with Saudi intelligence figures. That's actually in the 9-11 Commission report. It's in the congressional report. And, and basically, a lot was established around, you know, did these guys know people who had ties to Saudi intelligence, mm -hmm. blah, blah. The problem is it never established, like, that this was, like, a policy of Saudi intelligence to support these attackers. And and so, anyway, that's what he's talking about. It, 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 I don't think the government has, like, withheld stuff, but the mis original sin was at the beginning because they redacted all this stuff oh, about yeah, it, if you remember yeah. this. Yeah. Was, so, but he, so what he's speaking to is that the U.S. government is selective with the information it shares when it's embarrassing. And he's not wrong about that. No, like, no, I don't no. know why yeah. else that information was redacted at the beginning. Um, I think the more general point that you make is really important because people don't trust the U.S. government writ large at the same time that you see an explosion in conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories used to be about like, you know, curious, somewhat sometimes, you know, strange people, but sometimes, you know, even, you know, all of us have gone on rabbit holes of like trying to figure out if something happened. What's happening now is that they're just being told what's the counter story, the QAnon story or the Trump big lie about the election story. And all of a sudden you have 40, 50, 60 percent of Americans just ready to sign on without without doing the, the research, as Joe Rogan mm -hmm. would say, like they're just willing to hear an alternative reality that sounds it's more satisfying. More, yeah. Conspiracies and, are satisfying. And I think it is distorting the American political brain. And we've talked that we should continue to follow this because I, I think that the whole Joe Rogan, Elon Musk, you know, uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr., Vivek Ramashami, like it's not like a huge force in American politics, but it is there. And, 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 and with such razors and margins in our elections, like it's a potentially determining factor in elections, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the United States is a history of, I think, being prone to believing conspiracy theories. But I, I think, look, it, look, I'm not calling the lab leak theory a conspiracy theory. It's one theory. There's another theory that there was a natural release. New York Times had a great piece recently, uh, like sort of laying out the case for both sides. And I don't know what the answer is, but it is interesting that majority, the majority of the country believes the lab leak theory now, I think in part because it helps answer the question of how this horrible thing could happen to us in a way that's much more satisfying than the world is chaotic and random and it's out of control. You know, it's like a little more, it, it makes you feel a little more control if you think, okay, there was a lab doing research they shouldn't have done. We're going to shut down that research. We're going to shut the border and prevent this from happening again. Yeah. And I, I think it speaks to the need to be careful at the outset of the same thing I was saying with the Saudi piece. Uh, the lab leak theory 
in part got traction is because some of the statements about the origins of COVID were probably, you know, too definitive yeah, out of the gate, you know, yeah. you know, too categorical. And so then when you could raise questions about those statements, even if you couldn't prove the lab leak theory, if you can raise questions about the, the quote unquote official version, it throws everything up into question. And those questions know? got silenced on some social platforms. And yeah. So you got to be transparent about what you know and don't know. And you have to be careful about making categorical statements until you know you know, you know it categorically. Yeah, for sure. We got a lot of stuff today, so we'll move a little faster through these uh, next few. So the U.S. military is reportedly prepared to put teams of Marines and sailors on commercial ships transiting the Persian Gulf to deter Iranian forces from attacking them. These ships are vulnerable, especially in the Strait of Hormuz, which is this like narrow choke point between the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman, where 20% roughly of the world's crude passes through. Uh, it looks like the, what would happen here, Ben, is... Ships would request protection, including international ships. Uh, they would get approved or dis- not approved by the U.S. government uh, based on whatever equities they consider, including the country of origin of the ship approving the marine presence on them. Uh, the U.S. has steadily been deploying more and more Navy and you know military assets to the Gulf in response to Iran harassing and seizing a bunch of ships in the area. Uh, especially since 2019. In response, there was some Iranian you know, military drills the other day in the area, so they're watching this and not happy about it. So I have not seen confirmation that Biden has approved this plan. It sounds like he will, though, because you're not seeing it denied. I'd love to know a lot more about how this would work in practice. Like, let's say you have 20 Marines on some Dutch oil ship. They're attacked by a bunch of Iranian boats. They get in a firefight. Things don't go well. Are they calling in air support? You know, like, are we directly bombing these Iranian boats? Like, you know, so there's a lot of ways this seems um, escalatory or risky, but I I don't know. Like, what have you heard? Is this proposal something that's surprising to you? It is, because I I think we need to hear a little bit more about, like, why now? Like, why? There's been, as we said last week, there have been challenges in that in the Straits of Hormuz for a long time. Like, what are they seeing that, you know, necessitates this escalatory step? In any conventional flare-up, the U.S. has such overwhelming superiority that I'm not sure we need the Marines there at the beginning to be able to 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 deal with it. And you're right; like them being there could kind of raise the escalation risk out of the out of the box. So, like, well, let's reserve judgment. But I think they need to provide a little more information about like why they want to do this now. What's interesting is at the same time, I think there's these progress, you know, reportedly being made to some, mm-hmm. you know, some deal to get detainees released from inside of Iran and maybe freeze the nuclear program, not roll it back as far as the JCPOA did. But like, so this may also be the U.S. Sometimes you flex, you know, on the punitive side at the same time that you're trying to get a deal done. So part of me wonders if it's tied to that, too. It's like, we're going to show you, you know, here's our hardline policy at the same time that we're, you know, talking to you. Yeah, let's hope that. um, Yeah, let's hope that's the case. Diplomatic tracks (laughs) happening, too. Uh, Good news, bad news for the president of Colombia, President Gustavo Petro. So good news. Uh, The Colombian government signed a six-month ceasefire agreement with the National Liberation Army, or ELN, rebel group. The ELN uh, has an estimated of 2,000 to 5,000 fighters, and they are the largest remaining rebel group in Colombia. Fighting between the Colombian government and these various rebel groups, especially the FARC, uh, has killed at least 450,000 people over the last 60 years, according to a, a government sort of truth and reconciliation commission report that I think came out last year. Petro has been really prioritizing these sort of peace agreements and pushes. So let's hope this one holds. The bad news for President Petro, Ben, 
is that his son Nicholas was charged with money laundering and illicit enrichment for allegedly taking money from drug traffickers and then like buying houses with it. His ex-wife said she was at a meeting where her then-husband arranged a campaign donation to his father's campaign, but then pocketed the donation was from a guy convicted of drug trafficking in in the U.S. Uh, That has raised a broader set of questions about whether drug money funded Petro's political campaign. So never a great day when you're on a campaign and you get a press call that's like, hey, did you take a donation from a drug dealer? Yeah, and I think the son kind of pointed the finger at his dad too. I mean, look, first on the ELN piece of this, very welcome. The FARC was the biggest part of the peace process that needed to get settled, and that did under President Santos at the end of the Obama years. But the ELN is still out there and some other smaller groups. Now, Petro, you know, unlike Santos, the the previous president uh, who had made the deal um, with the FARC, he Santos had been defense minister. You know, Petro was a left wing guerrilla. <laughs> he was right? a guerrilla. So, like way yeah. back in the day, and so you know, his approach is going to be more diplomacy focused. Um, and if he can get that done, that's huge because, like, you know, you need to put th- this to rest. Part of the problem, though, is that these conflicts have become less ideological over time. Some of these groups are, you know, they're basically kind of drug traffickers who who are in it more for the money, uh, and so it makes peacemaking a little more complicated because part of what they want to hold on to is control of land mm-hmm. where they so so you got to combine this with some broader strategy to kind of integrate them into the economy and the politics of the country but like it's in our interest to get, see that happen so uh we should continue to be very supportive on the corruption thing i mean you know we'll just see how that plays out yeah, i mean great. it's not great for petro and uh, Colombian politics is always a little murky. You know, there's a lot of money sloshing around. So uh, we'll we'll see here. Tough to get dimed out by your ex-wife. It's not good. That's tough. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Petro was a member of the M19 uh, guerrilla movement. So, you know, interesting that he can cut a peace deal. Yeah. Gives him some credibility. Yeah. ISIS announced uh, that they got a new boss. Their leader, Abu al-Hussein al-Karashi, has been killed in fighting with a rival militant group in Syria. So ISIS named a new leader who's, you know, another brutal dickhead whose name I'm refuse to learn. Uh, He'll probably die soon too. (laughs) But the reason we wanted to flag this one was because a few months ago, we mentioned on the show, I think, that uh, Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan announced that that, uh, Al-Karashi had been killed in a Turkish intelligence operation. This new news where apparently ISIS now says, I mean, I guess it depends on who you believe, ISIS said he was (laughs) killed in a fight with another extremist group. It makes you wonder, was Erdogan lying? Was the Turkish intelligence working with this rival militant group? Is there some connected? I have no idea, but it was just weird and notable. Yeah. Well, the Erdogan thing, too, was like before his election. Right. I mean, yes, so they, yes. they might have seen that the guy died and took credit for it or who knows. I mean, we don't know. Um, I guess to, to me, like the good news, I guess, in this is that how small story this is. Like the ISIS leaders, kind of like the, the Al-Qaeda number three back mm-hmm. in the day. I mean, it's not a lot of job security in that position. And, and their territory in Iraq and Syria is really shrunk. They're, they're yeah. pretty marginalized. And so the only other issue I'd raise on this is like, there are still U.S. troops in Syria. And I'm not sure like what they're doing there. <laughs> you know? um, and, and I'm not saying, like, like, I'm sure people will say they need to be there to continue to coordinate. I think they're helping guard a lot of those prisons where some of these I think it's a combination are. of prisons and facilitating any continued uh, counterrest operations and just kind of being there because our allies, uh, the Kurds in the north, you know, uh, are more secure if the U.S. continues their presence. But I think some conversation over like what what are we doing there for how much longer is in order at some point? Because um, I'm not sure most Americans are aware we saw these troops in Syria. So they serve a purpose or they have served a purpose, but maybe less and less. And, and, and one of the things about ending the forever war is if you get to the point where you've 
accomplish what you sent troops to do, like, you know, bring them, bring them back. Yeah. Uh, another thing we wanted to flag was uh, the former president of Pakistan, Imran Khan, was arrested Saturday after a court sentenced him to three years in prison. Uh, in, in a number of past shows, we've talked a lot about Khan. He's sort of this like, you know, cricket star turned politician. Uh, he was uh, in power for a while. He picked a fight with the Pakistani military, got tossed out, and now he's whipping up his supporters in, in protest ever since. We won't revisit all of that, but it's a big deal now that he apparently won't be able to run for office again because he will be in prison for the October elections, I guess, unless he pulls a Trump and just does both. Yeah, well, yeah. at the end of the day, I mean, his supporters didn't kind of completely take to the streets when he got thrown in prison. And, true. Um, he may be running out of cards. Like if you're, you know, if you're taking on uh, like a military-backed government and prison is kind of the, um, the the card that they have to play. Now he may become over time like that may give him legitimacy to, you know, not inconceivable in a place like Pakistan that he steps out of prison one day and becomes prime minister again. But for the time being, at least, you know, this makes the election feel even more military controlled than usual. Oh yeah, I called him president. I meant prime minister. Yeah. How dare you? Uh, a couple other things here, Ben. So um, there was a New York Times story. Uh, <laughs> it ran with the headline, a global web of Chinese propaganda leads to US tech yeah. mogul. <laughs> so you and I both read this and we're like, what is going on? So the story is about how a guy named Neville Roy uh, Singham, who the Times says is a quote, known as a socialist benefactor of far left causes, is actually getting his money from the Chinese government as part of this broad propaganda effort. And then he uses it to prop up or fund progressive advocacy groups. Um, one thing we've learned on this show is that it's very hard to do long investigative pieces like this justice on the podcast by just repeating them. So you should all go read it yourselves. But two things jumped out at us, uh, one serious, one funny. The first is that, so uh, Singham is married to a woman named Jody Evans, who's the co-founder of Code Pink which is a very well-known anti-war yeah. group. I was surprised, disappointed, I don't know, shocked really to learn that Code Pink has gone from criticizing China's human rights record to defending their internment of the Uyghurs, which is a Muslim minority group in China that the Chinese have been throwing uh, in, in concentration camps, in re-education camps, people by the millions. She basically calls the Uyghurs terrorists and defends their detention uh, which is really, I mean, it's worse than genocide denial. It's yeah. a support for yeah. these actions. And then, so that's the serious part. The funny part was the, the Times describes their wedding as a who's who of progressivism and said that it was a working event that included a panel conversation on the future of the left. So they're all in Jamaica. They're like all in the Eve Ensler, who's... Who's now named V. Yeah. <laughs> right, who wrote the Vagina Monologues. Yeah. Uh, uh, who else was on it? I, I don't have the story in front of me. It was a fascinating it, it was group. A, it was a good crew, yeah. yeah. It was uh, quite a crew. I just did want to say, uh, if you invite me to your wedding and there's a panel discussion, I will not be attending and we're no longer friends. Yeah, it'd be like, you know, you, you have the ceremony and then you think you're going to be like uh, shown to a reception for drinks and instead you're shown into like a a panel discussion it's just you and me talking about uh, sanctions and about the future of the left you know like like i mean I, the one like serious point i make on this is it's a great article people should read it and essentially it's like the chinese are funding all these different bits and pieces of left-wing infrastructure in the united states that take positions that are friendly to china and also kind of more insidiously frankly funding stuff in africa um yes. that is basically like africans think they're showing up to be trained to be like kind of organizers in politics and that all they're being trained on is how great the chinese are um the the challenge for this on the left in this country is um as, as someone who kind of interacts with a bunch of people in the progressive and even left space like 
there are, you know, there are good left-wing arguments that will need to be made in the years and even decades to come about not getting into conflict with China, not getting into, you know, a total Cold War paradigm with China. If you are making those arguments from a vantage point of a, being paid by the Chinese government or being in some kind of paid partnership with the Chinese government, or the only way you're making those arguments is around apologies for the internment. This is where the left gets in trouble. Like, you, you, It's a good policy objective to say, let's not have war with China. Mm-hmm. We don't need to deny a genocide in order to make that policy argument. And I so, don't get why that's so hard. I, it's just very important to draw. Like, it doesn't mean you have to, to to be hating on the Chinese all the time. Some people could even say, like as this guy says in the article, like I actually like their system. I don't like their system. You, but like, if basically the the movement in this country against conflict with China becomes kind of co opted by this Chinese Communist Party agenda of burnishing their image, that's very bad for, I think, what is a legitimate point of view. Yeah, it's Um, very bad for the left. For the left. You should not be out there defending, throwing well over a million people into these re-education camps where people are tortured, murdered, raped. I mean, the stories from survivors of these camps are the most harrowing things you've ever heard in your life. To suggest that, like, it was a necessary evil because this this is what she said, like the Saudis funded Wahhabi schools and, and you know, exported extremists to Xinjiang, China. It's like, what the, are you talking about? And they also had points in there that like the Hong Kong protest movement were the same as the January 6th rioters. I mean, what? I mean, like that kind of stuff is just hugely discrediting to left wing views on foreign policy writ large. And so I, I would urge people that to, to just make sure that that you're not like dipping your toe in these waters because it's it's undermines uh, it undermines frankly well-meaning people who yeah. aren't like taking those positions but who don't want to conflict with China. Wild, wild story worth reading. Uh, ben, I, before we get to uh, some of our interviews, I just want to quickly describe to you one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. If that's okay, sure. Uh, have you heard of WorldCoin? I don't think so. It's okay. It was co-founded by a guy named Sam Altman. You might have heard oh, of yeah. him. Oh, well, I've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, Silicon Valley VC, muckety muck. He started Y Combinator, very successful uh, investor thingy. Uh, he's currently the CEO of OpenAI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they do chat GPT, et cetera. So here's the pitch for WorldCoin. So these Silicon Valley types say, because of AI, which by the way, we unleashed on uh, humanity, it's becoming almost impossible to distinguish between humans and machines online. Basically, like they can do all the captcha things, right? It's like hard to uh, prove that you are you. Um, Also, AI is going to take all of our jobs because it's going to achieve, you know, it's going to surpass human intelligence. So eventually we are all going to need a universal basic income. Uh, that too will require being able to confirm your digital identity and prove that you're a human because we don't want a, a bunch of fraud getting paid out. Enter WorldCoin. It is a biometric cryptocurrency, uh, proof of identity concept oh, I did company. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what they've done, they've sent these shiny metallic orbs all over the world. And when you look at the orbs, I wish I had an orb, you can scan your iris and it creates a unique digital fingerprint for you called a World ID. Sam Altman hopes that one day... You can use this ID for all your passwords and various accounts, but it's but it's more secure because it's linked to this like hash, this sort of digital token that's made from your iris, not your identity, not your email, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the way they're getting people to sign up for this thing is by saying, if you do the scan of your iris, then you download our app, we'll give you some cryptocurrency that, by the way, we created 
and here's your magic money. So WorldCoin, they've been focusing their marketing in places like Indonesia, Kenyan, Kenya, Chile. Uh, you'll be shocked to hear that there's been a lot of deceptive marketing. People have offered like free AirPods and things that never materialized. Um, the Kenyan government recently ordered WorldCoin to stop signing up users because of privacy concerns and launched an investigation. Some of WorldCoin's investors include uh, A16Z, Mark Andreessen's venture capital company, uh, Bain Capital Crypto. Uh, so Ben, I just want to be clear that these, these rapacious um, Silicon Valley VCs, they're investing in WorldCoin because they want to help poor people. They care about welfare and UBI, hmm. not because they want a massive business with all our identities to make a lot of money. Yeah, I guess the only thing I'd say- You need to stare at the this, orb? You want my uh, orb? Not, not quite ready for the orb. Okay. Um, I, I think that like it ties back to what we we're saying about distrusting governments, right? Because- Look, I, I I have a healthy, you know, I think everybody should have a healthy distrust of governments, but governments, for whatever their faults, or at least our government, it doesn't have like a profit motive, you know? Um, some governments do. I mean, Putin's does. But like, you know, part of the problem is I, I would rather trust the government to back up currencies. Me too. Like, like because once you are handing over currencies to people with their own profit motive, you know, that gets murky to me. And so it's telling me- Or your me, identity. Or your identity. Like Sam Waldman, I found to be like a more, you know, reasonable guy than some of these other people. But like, you know, it's no coincidence, I guess, is where I'd lead this, that some very same people stoking distrust in governments, right? Your Elon Musks, your Andreessen's, your Zuckerberg's are also the people proposing these systems where- Basically, the corporation replaces the government or the yeah. Elon Musk replaces the government. And they're and propping up cryptocurrency in the process. Exactly. Which A16Z has pumped a ton of money into that they could lose. So, you know, next time you hear one of these tech bros propagating conspiracy theories, like, well, maybe they have uh, like a business reason that they're doing it, which is that they want to discredit governments. And they basically, I think some of these people, I don't think Sam Altman, because he's actually called for government regulations. But some of these people, I think, would like to replace governments. And that's scary. The yeah. only thing worse in governments would be tech companies running uh, all of our lives. I just would rather have my money in a bank backed by the FDIC than in, let's say, FTX. Yes. Uh, Sam Beckman fried Well, when their Silicon Valley bank went under, guess who bailed it out? Yeah, the look FDIC. Who, look who they yeah. whined to. Uh, finally, Ben, this new segment is called, uh, What in the World is British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak up to? Well, it turns out one uh, activist from Greenpeace managed to climb onto the roof of his house cover it entirely with black cloth to protest his plan to approve 100 new oil and gas licenses. So bold protest. Uh, Greenpeace still got it. Seems like an yeah, interesting, yeah. bit of a security failure. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. Imagine if, I don't know, the White House is covered in cloth all of a sudden. Uh, but Rishi didn't seem to mind Ben because he was on the road. Let's hear a clip. I just had the biggest heart attack of my life. So I walk into my Taylor Swift themed 7 a.m. Soul Cycle class in Santa Monica and there's Secret Service everywhere in the studio. They're lined up on the sidewalk. They're inside. They're in every corner. They're like standing there with their earpieces and like they're all serious and there's just security everywhere. I'm like, what is going on? My mind immediately goes like, holy shit, Taylor Swift is about to be riding in my 7 a.m. Soul Cycle class. Like she's performing in LA. Like celebrities do this all the time. So we get in and I'm like trying to look around but trying to play it cool. And the security guard comes into the class. There's actually like three of them like standing in all the corners and they stand there like all serious the whole entire class. And the teachers usually like turn on and off the lights. In this class, she just like kept the lights off. It was very private. And of course, you've heard of like Justin Bieber coming in and singing a song and like Beyonce and Jay-Z like 
riding class so i'm freaking out the whole time so the class ends and i'm looking around trying to see where she is it turns out it was the prime minister of the uk apparently he's a swifty <laughs> uh that's a tiktok from a woman named hannah harmelin who apparently thinks taylor swift has secret service um big first, big bummer rishi sunak is wah, wah. yeah yeah imagine you know first of all that like that is such a uh, and i'm a swifty but like not in hannah's league like that that you could just tell we we had a great uh swifty correspondent there um i don't know rishi uh you know we uh we like uh we, you know, Soul Cycle. It's it's just kind of a strange look. But I guess what you could say maybe he's trying to differentiate himself from Boris Johnson. Mm. Um, Boris probably didn't work out much. Yeah, Boris probably couldn't do the Taylor Swift uh, Soul Cycle. But uh, you know, Rishi, we see what you're doing. We know we know it all too well. Also That's interesting. Kind of there you go. Yeah. Also interesting that they're not you know bound by the politics of like. I don't know. I feel like U.S. presidents, you end up vacationing in the United States, or else you're brutally attacked. Interesting that the British Prime Minister just vacations in LA yeah (laughs) yeah I mean it's uh uh I think it's like we we have we're one of the only countries that has this kind of weird fixation on where people vacation because I notice a lot of European leaders like they'll vacation like the south of France that's true that's true in Europe Um, you can travel more freely they're they're, they're a little more open to that kind of thing which is probably healthy yeah Uh, all right we're gonna take a quick break uh when we come back we are gonna talk about the status of democracy globally so stick around for that Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. 
Okay, we are back and we are joined uh, by Crooked Media's own Max Fisher. Max, good to see you. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. You're, you're getting all this offline time. We're starting to feel jealous. <laughs> Fat bro. I, I was actually, look, I was on my way for the Rishi Sunak Soul Cycle class. <laughs> yeah. That around here. Am I you. in the right place? Is that yeah. why you're wearing this uh, Tour de France outfit? <laughs> That's right. I think I look great in my purple <laughs> well, are, spandex. Are, are you the, the person that would be psyched? To find out that it wasn't T Swift in the Soul Cycle class, it was Rishi Sunak. Oh. I don't know if Rishi Sunak would be the coolest <laughs> yeah, world leader yeah, yeah. to see in a Soul Cycle class. No, that's a good question. Who would be who yeah. would be the number one? You know who's done them over in Santa Monica a few times? Michelle Obama. But okay. I think they usually okay. rent the whole thing out. Rishi, yeah. you cheap bastard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Worth half a billion dollars. But anyway, we're digressing. Uh, so Max is here. We keep talking about stories on uh, the show that feel like uh, are very depressing about the state of global <laughs> democracy. You know, Thailand, you know, yeah, doesn't, it's right. unclear if uh, democratically elected leaders will get to take power. There's obviously the coup in Niger. And Max, you're, you're a student of democracy globally. You mm -hmm. pay attention to this stuff for years. You've written about it forever. And we were hoping you could give us sort of a snapshot of like how things look when you really look around the world for democracy. So I love to be the optimist on the show and boy, am I not gonna do that today. Mm. I am so sorry to say. You did such a good job on uh, right-wing populism, uh, giving the optimist case a couple of I know, yeah. well, I have to counterbalance it. Yeah. I have to bring some balance by <laughs> I the- I thought that was good by the way. That was yeah, compelling. No, yeah, yeah, you were like- uh, <laughs> Made me feel better. <laughs> yeah, they got a 15% ceiling, yeah. Okay, good. Well, now I'm ready to bring you back down again. Yeah. So we are, I think it's easy to miss in the like ups and downs of all these individual countries. We are living in the middle of a completely unprecedented moment in the history of global democracy. And I think like oh, probably no. a very pivotal moment. And when you kind of like take a step back and look at the story of democracy and where we are today, I think it really clicks into view what's happening. So until recently, like throughout the democratic era, like basically the onset of democracy in the late 1900s, with the exception of World War II, the world has always been getting steadily more democratic. And that's everything. That's more new democracies in the world. That's like existing democracies getting freer and stabler. That's authoritarian countries becoming softer. And it's fewer and fewer things like coups and other shocks that mm. like will overturn a democracy. Um, and so everyone thought that democracy was just like inevitable in the world for a really long time, especially if you're our age, like you grew up at a time when we all thought like everybody's going to be a democracy eventually. And this peaks in the late 90s when at one point at the like height of democracy's growth in the world, there are 72 countries worldwide that are democratizing at the same time, which wow. is huge. And there's only three that are getting more authoritarian. So you see how everybody was like, really optimistic and thought that it was going to be this like great inevitable wave towards democracy Th that late era clinton state department had it so good oh man <laughs> oh my god it's just like shooting fish in a barrel <laughs> I know. you know just like oh what what wind should we pocket yeah, today? What, what, yeah. We, yeah. What the, press release? the entire u.s state department going to kosovo the one problem spot they yeah, could yeah, find yeah, where right. kosovars are actually outnumbered for east a little timor, bit by, you know, yeah, yeah that's right yeah, east, yeah. east timor right east timor is a huge foreign policy initiative. right right australian scuba divers yeah. the anti-democracy movement <laughs> sorry for cutting up oh uh, no, no 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 fine um so, uh, but recently political scientists have developed these new metrics for studying democracy where we can now measure very finely the precise level of democracy in every country on earth over every year. And we've learned a lot from that. And the big thing we've learned that I think makes a lot of sense of what's happening today is that all of those democratizing trends reversed really hard around the year 2000, starting in the early oh. 2000s. 
democracy's expansion started to slow. And at the same time, the number of countries moving towards authoritarianism that had like basically zeroed out started to rise. And that was really easy to miss at the time because we were looking for dramatic events like coups and wars. Like we think of like the tanks showing up at the Capitol is how a democracy ends. But it mm -hmm. was actually starting to happen much more in like elected leaders like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Vladimir Putin in Russia, under whom democracy would gradually erode. And there's this really important threshold that got crossed in 2014, although we didn't know it at the time. We only found out about this later, hmm. where that year, more countries in the world were moving towards authoritarianism than countries that were moving towards democracy, which has only happened one other time in world history during World War II. So like basically the spread of authoritarianism started to grow so much, it caught up to the spread of democracy in 2014. And then several years after that, 2021, another really important threshold gets crossed, which is that year, there are only 15 countries in the world democratizing, but there are more than twice that, 33 moving towards authoritarianism, which has never happened, never happened at any point in the democratic era, even during the rise of fascism, that it was two to one outnumbered countries moving towards authoritarianism versus democracy. And I'll give you some stats on where we are now, what that picture looks like. Um, democracy is now contracting on average in every region of the world, including, of course, right here in lovely North America, uh, declining in wealthy countries, in poor countries, in UI, U.S. allies, among adversaries, uh, in new democracies and old ones. Um, in 2011, only 5% of people worldwide lived in a country that was becoming more authoritarian. So it was very rare to live in a country that is getting more authoritarian. But 10 years later in 2021, that figure had shot up to 36% of the world. So Jesus. almost 3 billion people in the world live in a country that is getting more authoritarian. Uh, also in 2021, only 3% of the world population lives in a country that is getting more democratic because democracy's growth has slowed that much. Um, never in modern history have this many countries been moving towards authoritarianism. And the rate of change in any one country is usually very gradual. And a year by year, it doesn't feel like a big seismic event. But that adds up to such a dramatic change that as of last year, democracy's global gains since the Cold War have been completely wiped out. Right. So we are now in the state of global democracy worse than we were in 1989 with the end of the Cold War. So, so I'm going to throw wow. some things at you because, you know, I, uh, you and I have both written books about this uh, after the fall by me, Chaos Machine by You. Sure. Uh, if you want to check it out. Hell yeah. Um, Cheers. But like, uh, you know, you've got, you mentioned Putin coming to power in 2000. You've got the war on terror starting in 2001, right, which kind of securitizes democracy, mm -hmm. start pr prioritizing national security and terrorism starts to be used as an excuse by autocrats to become more autocratic. Then you've got the war in Iraq. And the kind of fusion of U.S. you know imperial militarist foreign policy under the guise of democracy promotion, which I think was not great for the you know cause of democracy promotion at large. You've got the financial crisis in 2008, which kind of creates this huge space of disaffected publics looking for different models of leadership. Uh, then you have the explosion of social media mm -hmm. uh, in the Obama years, which brings both the kind of Arab Spring, but also the crackdown in response and the utilization of social media tools to crack down. You have China offering a more you know, successful autocratic model that begins to be replicated in different parts of the world. Then you have Donald Trump, like the US suddenly governed by an autocrat breaking norms, 
You've got the rise of anti-immigrant politics in Europe. You've got all these, you, you know, I, I I throw those out there as some, you know, roadmark. I'm sure that you, people could come up with a few more right. uh, steps along the way. I guess the one thing I want to just uh, put on the table, Max, and we can come back to this, is there's, you know, the question of democracies kind of being mm-hmm. undone from within, the kind of Orban effect we've talked about a lot. But then, like, one of the things that I worry about the most is if you look at the post, um, you know, Cold War positivity, a lot of it was in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, global South, non-Western, uh, and those seem to be places where this is really a trend. You know, there's so much focus uh, on kind of like what's happening inside of uh, European and, and U.S. democracy. But those places, I mean, we did Thailand, you know, the other day, like Southeast Asia went from being a bright spot in this space to like a pretty dark spot. We've talked about Africa today and the coups there. And Latin America, a little tenuous, got Bukele is the most popular leader in Latin America from El Salvador, yeah. who's popular as an autocrat. One thing, you know, one question is just like, how can you arrest this trend, not just within the West, but, you know, in these regions like Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Obviously, Latin America is still, you know, largely democratic, but that—that that to me is a real problem. Is how do you get a foothold to renew democratization in these regions where the trend lines are all bad? You know, I think that's a really important observation because something that I have really come away with is that there is simultaneously these set of like global forces that have slowed the rise of democracy, like the war on terror, which yeah. led to this like big global shift where democracy is no longer an international priority. And now it's towards like counterterrorism, um, things like the financial crisis, uh, a big response by global autocrats after the color revolutions in the early 2000s, yeah. and the Arab Spring in 2011. But at the same time, I think in like some ways the most power, like you're saying, the most powerful force for pulling back democracy has been this simultaneous emergence in so many different countries and so many parts of the world towards a real desire among a lot of voters for like strong man and liberal rule. And there's a lot of theories as to like why that might be, but I think we do have to see this as as tempting as it is as to see it as just like the bad guys, the, you know, Vladimir Putin's and Xi Jinping's are like assaulting democracy globally. I think that we have to look at it as a problem of so many populations around the world and especially religious and ethnic minorities in a lot of countries deciding maybe we don't like democracy that much or we don't like liberal democracy and we want to temper that. And that's why people like Narendra Modi are really popular. Paul Kagame in Rwanda, Narendra Modi in India, the Singapore model in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. You know, these are, you know, the people who support democracy need to answer the question of why, you know, I have friends in in Sub-Saharan Africa who say like, Kagame looks pretty good, you know, know, and I'm not saying that, that that's not without, we could poke holes in that, but but that that to me, you know, Bukele now, we, who we've made fun of a lot on this podcast, you know, but like- he's like an 85% yeah, approval rate. I mean, they like what he's doing there. And, right. uh, you know, uh, so- and to be clear, what yeah. he's doing is throwing Everybody everyone you can see in every, jail. Every yeah. man of a certain age in jail. You know, it's, jail, it's yeah, akin yeah. to the Rodrigo Duterte it anti-drug is. policy yeah. in the Philippines That's where you just point. kill them all. Right. Yeah. What do you think about, Max, the, sorry, what last quote thing for me, um, the, the, in this, because I focus on this in my book, the, the, the discrediting of globalization generally. That mm-hmm. like the the democracy was tied to the idea that you have more equitable and successful economic outcomes, right? And that kind of the collapse in confidence in globalization, uh, which in this country is like you know we don't like elites and we don't like the 
mm-hmm. trade agreements and things like that. But the, the democracy got tied to kind of like neoliberal globalization. Right. And that, that that's part of what's going on here is that like the failure of economics has led to a failure of democratic politics. I mean, I think that we always had this belief that economic development, like if the, if the numbers are going up in the economy, people will naturally prefer democracy. And I think that was always rooted in the idea that what people ultimately want is a liberal democracy. And I think that whether we're talking about, you know, the Philippines, India, the United States, I think that something that we have found is that is ultimately just not, people will reject liberal democracy, even if the economy is good, if they feel that their social in-group Mm-hmm. is not thriving in the way that they want it to thrive. And that's not to endorse that view. That's not yeah. to say that like they have a point or we like that. And I think that a lot of what looks like the backlash towards globalization, I mean, partly it's just like the post-financial crisis yeah. failures of globalization, yeah. but I think it was also always just this assumption that this particular economic development model of like lift all boats, a rising tide that lifts all boats will make people want democracy. And I think what we're learning, like if you look at the United States or you look at India, is that there was this real backlash, and especially in, in Europe too, actually, when democracy actually reached a certain point. And this is a like Pip and Norris thesis that I really buy into as to what's driving the democratic backlash, that democracy reached such a point that minorities started to be really included socially and politically in a way that they weren't before. And immigrants mm-hmm. started to be really included. And that, you know, a lot of us think that's great. I think that's great. But that for some number of people, and again, this is not to say these views have to be catered to, but just as a diagnosis, had a real severe backlash against that. And so like the idea of a strong man who's going to come in and say, I'm going to impose order, I'm going to control these minorities that you don't like, and I'm going to restore, you know, make America great again, or make India Hindu nationalist again. It's depressing. Yeah, but I mean, look, <laughs> it certainly tracks with our history and some yeah. of the things we're yeah. seeing the Republicans do right yeah, it's now. A, it's like a post-reconstruction, you know, right. global. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, Republicans ran around for how many decades saying abortion should be left up to the states. And then today, Ohio is voting to make it harder for citizens to enshrine abortion rights into their constitution. So it doesn't seem like they want democracy unless it's the brand of it that they yeah, like. Yeah, a lot of U.S. Right. states are, are in that category. Right. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people like to vote for... Um, a government that will impose strict control of, over social behaviors that they don't like. But if there is a silver lining, I think it's that when people... Invade them. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> Bring democracy. Echo That's right. Avengers yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. E- Echo was in Washington, D.C. Yeah. It could be worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, is that people uh, People who these electorates that support the like strongman populist government that tears down democracy from within, which is the big driving force of democracy's like, decline globally, they tend to like those governments in theory, but they tend to hate living under them. And this is like what happened to like Donald Trump. A lot of people voted for him and then they saw what that actually looks like and they see what actually it feels like to start losing your rights and then they hate it and they throw that off. That's what happened in a lot of European countries. And I think the question is like, how do you empower movements in these countries? Like in India, there are now, what was it, Kerala that voted out Modi's party? Uh, empower movements in these countries to say like, actually liberal democracy is not just nice as an ideal, but it is actually a better kind of system to live under, even if I've forgotten that because I find the rate of social change scary and then help people like act on that and bring it about before it 
becomes too late as it can in countries where you have these populace around for too long. Yeah, the getting too late part is the scary part where, uh, you know, it's sort of gerrymandering or the courts get rigged to the extent that uh, it's hard to put. Right. Or Hungary or Turkey. Yeah. It changes the rules. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it just feels generally to me like the, someone who tried to work on like, you know, one country like a Myanmar democracy transition, the pendulum's going to have to swing back big globally. You know, like yeah, it's harder and harder to find like one country and, you know, th there's going to have to be some bigger backlash against this trend, you know? Yeah. Something I I was really struck by is this Pew poll from two years ago where they polled people in 16 different countries about a lot of things about how they view the U.S. Was One, one was whether they considered American democracy to be a model. And it was only 17 percent said that they thought American democracy what? was wow. worth emulating. And I think that has That's a very real... new. That's very new, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. I think that has a real effect. And I don't think you have to be like a proud American patriot who like loves American democracy to worry about the decline of that model because I think it is really useful to have like yeah. something that people think as they like, look, here's a big democracy I know about and it works. Yeah, well, Max, that was very depressing, but uh, super <laughs> Thanks interesting. Thanks for that. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. All right, that's it for us this week. Thanks again to Max Fisher, who's still sitting right here. Guys, uh, thanks for having me. And I'll see you at uh, SoulCycle yeah, with Rishi. Carpool over to SoulCycle. <laughs> see you, Rishi. Uh, better than seeing Boris Johnson. So yeah, that, that is. <laughs> Come on, I would love to see Imagine Boris Johnson at yeah, SoulCycle. Well, that's, that's getting a bike behind him is uh, nobody deserves that. <laughs> you, don't want this, you don't want to stop on him. Talk to you guys next week. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. Thanks to Saul Rubin and Rebecca Rottenberg for production support. Our intern is Naomi Bierenbaum. <laughs>